Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Kevin Butt, Senior Director, Environmental Sustainability, Toyota Motor, North America. On today's episode, we discuss Toyota's holistic approach to sustainability and why Toyota is doing good by the environment. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here, Grayson. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's great to have you here because I want to highlight something. You're an OG in sustainability. You've been doing it for 30 years. It's going to have an important impact on society. And more importantly, you have the experience. So I can't wait for you to, to share that incredible insight of what you learned through your 30-year career in sustainability. Well, it has been a long career, but it's been a great career. I mean, and I've said this many a time, but you know, I do believe I have the best job in Toyota. You know, I, I get a lot of flexibility in doing a lot of projects that, you know, you can actually get up in the morning and, and feel good about what you've done and, and hopefully look forward to those those next projects that keep moving us forward. Your projects are really cool. And for listeners, if you go on Toyota's website, you can see some of the work that Kevin's done with water, which we'll, we'll get into a little bit because there's some really special things you've done there. But Kevin, before we get into the wonderful projects that you've done that have a positive impact on the Toyota Motor Corporation, a positive impact on society... I want to start with this because during the 2022 SAEWCX conference titled Sustainability, It's in Everyone's Best Interest, you stated something that's very, very important. I want to quote you here. To me, sustainability is something that we should work together on. It's something that we need to communicate together and be able to share ideas to move at a pace that makes the most sense as we move forward because we do need to move forward. Well said. How do we move forward together and not operate in silos? I think currently in today's society, the importance of what we're talking about, whether it's climate change, whether it's water shortage, whether it's material usage or impacts our biodiversity, it's all interlinked, right? It's a holistic approach that we have to take to be able to make significant change. And none of us are experts in that. We make cars for a living, right? So we we have to broaden our scope, reach out to partners, and those that have that expertise and be able to share our thoughts and learn from them and then share those thoughts with our other OEMs and suppliers because it's it's the auto industry that will you know as a large scale organization be able to make that change along with other industries but it's all about that communication and sharing those positive ideas how do you take those positive ideas and you you bring it into Toyota and, and you implement them and then eventually you share them with other OEMs that's great. It's organizations like SAE and it's organizations like Supplier Partnership for the Environment uh, that uh, we all work together. We, we actually collaborate in that space and try to share those best practices and do that without, you know, that, that constant uh, competitiveness, if you will, of, of making that best car. What we're doing now is working together to be able to create positive environmental success, where we're actually making change and making change at, at scale. That's where this gets really exciting. And I found that, you know, the partners and the other OEMs, we like talking about this together and we like being able to share those those ideas and, and move together as an industry. Uh, like an example, in, in Plano, Texas, in your, in your global uh, uh, U.S., uh, sorry, North American headquarters, you have a water recycling plant that was put in there so you're capturing the, the rainwater you're capturing the runoff from the garage that's doing really well is that something that you went to your other oem friends said hey toyota solved the, the the issue with water and the recycling is that an example of something that you might share with your other oem partners 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't know that we've solved it, but this is a great way to improve that process. Uh, you know, as you just said, we have large cisterns under each of our parking garages that collect rainwater off the solar panels that are on top of that garage. And we recycle that water and actually use some of it to flush toilets and do what minimal irrigation we do on, on the property. So it, it is a tremendous savings uh, in, a, in a water stress region. So it's really important that we address those areas that are in water stress regions by doing projects like this. I want to highlight another region. Toyota has operations in, in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, and you're doing water recycling. I thought the neatest thing was you recycle the water, you purify it, and then you put it through a, a marsh before it goes into the river. And you want a lot of accolades there from the local environmental groups. Why was the decision made to put it into the marsh before going into the river? One of the great things about a marsh system and that, and that ecosystem, it also is a very viable part of being able to improve the environment. So anytime you improve an ecosystem through the use of, of keeping it moist or uh, using it as a filtration system, it adds value. It adds value to that and it helps clean water even further, but it also provides that, that nice ecosystem for uh, habitat and water uh, fowl to be able to use that water, you know, as breeding grounds and all the other insects that are important that the fish, I'm sorry, that the uh, waterfowl uh, uh, eat on. And you have the trail there. It's, it's a beautiful walking environment to get to see. You're doing great by the environment. And if you want to take a walk, you get to see this beautiful nature right there. I think one of the most critical things that we can do is educate people. You know, a lot of people would probably do the right thing environmentally if they knew what the choices were. So the more that we educate people by exposing them to things such as that walking trail and getting that experience out in nature, you know, it, it allows them to, to kind of refocus, if you will. And so, you know, we'd like to educate, one, our team members, because, you know, if we educate them at work, we hope they take home with them those practices that we're doing, and then they themselves can participate in a more eco-friendly lifestyle. And, and then, they, then maybe their friends learn from that. So it's all about trying to create that education and allowing people to have, you know, the right uh, information in front of them so they can make the right decisions. And then you never know. They can have a barbecue on the weekend and come up with an idea and come back to say, hey, Kevin, we were thinking about what if we did X, Y, and Z? Could it improve the sustainability? You might get some really interesting ideas from the employees that way as well. Absolutely. It's funny you say that. I mean, recently I had uh, some folks over here at the house and somebody inadvertently tried to uh, dispose of something in uh, in a non-recycling way. And so being Kevin, I, I had to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, We're, we recycle here and, you know, this is how that should be done. And that led to a long conversation, you know, because sometimes it's not great to have recycling conversations at your at your barbecue, but, you know, Sometimes it's good because then we, we, we had this debate about well, how much of the recycling is actually recycled and, and you know, how do we better segregate. So it was a great conversation that people could learn from and, and gain a little more appreciation for. And so does that individual now call you Professor Kevin when you see that individual? That's not exactly what he called me at the time, but uh, it was, he was very appreciative of uh, getting to know a little bit more of, of what that really meant. It means a lot because it will have a positive impact on society. We, we have to do something, and that's a, a general across the board. The one thing that means a lot of things to a lot of individuals, different links, is sustainability. What does the word sustainability mean to you? 
I think I take a very simplistic view at that because there is a lot of people that have different meanings to that. To me, it's about being able to use resources and being able to, after using those resources, not creating any more harm to the environment or replenishing the environment with those resources as possible. So, you know, creating an environment where we, we aren't doing damage and we're leaving it in place for those that come after us. I want to highlight something there on the Toyota front. Because as Toyota manufactures some of the world's best vehicles, in, in 2020, Toyota's North America facilities totaled 713.8 million pounds of waste. Of that, 93.2%, I repeat, 93.2% of all that waste was recycled, reused, or composted. How is that possible? It's a discipline. You know, it's a, as I said earlier, you, you know, if you go way back to the Toyota founding fathers, you know, they used a term called Muda. And Muda was, you know, waste. And, and how, do, how do we eliminate that waste? So it's a part of the production process. But it's also, you know, we have to educate our team members on what that means and, and creating an ideal way in which they can recycle and makes it simple but effective. So that continued education of why we're doing this and, and where the end products are going, it goes a long way in creating that buy-in to our team members for doing that on site. So it's, it's again, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a part of the system. That's, that's the way we do business. Does that strategy tie into the five-year environmental action plans that you actively work on and publish for the organization? Yes, absolutely. You know, this is our, we're into our seventh five-year environmental action plan. So I've been around for all but the very first one of those to, wow, and that's, that's hard to believe. But yeah, those, this, these five-year action plans are designed to create short-term targets a five-year window where we're actually setting targets that we need uh, to accomplish. And behind those five-year targets are one-year action plans, right? So, you know, you might, in a five-year period, you might not in the first two or three years of that focus on certain aspects of that five-year action plan. So we, we allow them to divide up those targets and those activities into one-year segments. But at the end of that five-year plan, you're expected to meet uh, that five-year period of targets. And then in that fourth year of that five-year plan, we're already working on the next five-year plan that allows us to, you know, look at what we accomplished, but also look at what we missed. You know, we're not perfect and the world's changing. So we have to be flexible in uh, readdressing what those targets might have been and how fast we might need to accomplish those. So that's that's one of the big big benefits of putting things in a five-year plan. You have a, a little bit of far reach, but you also have the ability to change that within that five-year plan on an annual basis. When you mentioned the, the plans change, could there be a, a technological breakthrough that allows something to be recycled that previously wasn't be able to recycle? Let's use batteries, for example. There's been a lot of technological breakthrough of recycling batteries. Could that be an example of something you can incorporate perhaps into the next five-year plan? Absolutely. Or if it's a, it's, a, it, it's a breakthrough that just happened, we won't hesitate to, to bring that technology in to help us achieve those targets early. There's nothing wrong with reaching a target early, whether it's a, a battery target or a water target or a biodiversity target, whatever it is, you know, we, we need to be able to implement quickly. This is, you know, it, it's time is short, right? And we, and we, we have to be able to, uh, to act quickly. 
looking at acting quickly, Toyota, in my opinion, very humbly, you introduced the hybrid car. You made it the coolest car in the world when Leonardo DiCaprio took it to the Oscars and your public sales figures backed up the success on that. And a lot of those Priuses now are coming to to end of life are, and, and they have batteries in them. Will those batteries coming out of those, those Priuses and, and the RAV4s that are also hybrid, will they eventually start to get recycled? Yeah, our hope is that we recover every one of those batteries over time and be able to, one, remanufacture them to be able to put them back in a car in a very useful way or repurpose them as in making them into energy storage uh, that we can take renewable energy, power them, and then use that power at night or recycle them. And as you said, there are a lot of uh, breakthroughs in the recycling side of batteries, which is absolutely necessary. We're still not where I think we need to be in that. It's one of the biggest worries I have is, is, you know, how do we deal with all these batteries as this push to electrification takes place? You know, there's no good deed that goes unpunished, right? So, you know, we have to think about what are we going to do with them at the end of their life? But we also have to think about all that raw material that we're consuming at the same time as we go towards electrification. So we have to be able to clearly identify that whole process and confirm that this rush to electrification is not causing more harm in some form in certain regions. So, you know, to me, it's, it's this whole viewpoint that we have to carefully examine to make sure where, where the benefits are in this, in this area. Thank you for for highlighting the the battery supply chain. Some of it is very dirty. I'll use the word dirty. It's it's not clean. The the mines are um, not using renewable energy. There's there's human rights abuses, and there's a lot of bad things that go into that. Are you looking? You mentioned are you diving deep in that supply chain and trying to pick a vendor? Say for instance, let's call it Acme Mining that's using all renewable energy, no child labor that meets Toyota's. Let's call it the the foundation and the brand of Toyota that's, that stands behind something? Absolutely. We've, we've always had a lot of uh, procedures and policies in place that look at, you know, unfair labor practice, look at companies that are not performing in an environmental sound manner. So yes, that's, that's a part of the purchasing process. And we do a lot of auditing to confirm what our suppliers say they do to confirm that that's what they do. So I think that's also important. And, and normally we suppliers are doing what they say they do. So that's a good thing. It it allows us, that's why Toyota has such long-term partnerships with our supply base, because, you know, we we have mutual understanding and we're providing each other with uh, what we need. Because it'll be fantastic in in the future. I'm not going to put a date on this, but in and one of your uh, your partners' showrooms, they go in there to buy a Toyota, and, they, and perhaps there's a Toyota green sale in the vehicle that this vehicle is made using 100% renewable energy in the safest, most cleanest way for the environment. To me, that would be a triumphant moment. That would be great. I think one of the ways we have to be able to, to, before we can do that, we all have to be able to measure these things in the same form or fashion, right? So there, you know, what is that standard? What is that, the blue ribbon methodology by which you can actually say and confirm that that car was made in that manner. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot to do between now and then of how do we finally get there. But that is, that it would be an ultimate goal, right? Because quite frankly, you know, our targets are to be uh, from our manufacturing and and other operations to be carbon neutral by 2035. So, you know, that's fine. That's that's us and our manufacturing. But now we have to follow up 
and we are working with our suppliers, right? We've issued uh, uh, a request to them, a requirement actually through our green supplier requirements to reduce their emissions by 3%, uh, CO2 emissions by 3% per year, every year. And that's on a total carbon standpoint. So, you know, we're, we're trying to get uh, our suppliers to engage with us in that space and because that's it's a long path of parts and materials that go into manufacturing a car so we you know in order for me to feel good about putting a sticker on a car that says that i've got i've got a long trail to follow and we're working in that space to to hopefully get there i wish you a lot of luck and there's a lot millions of individuals around the world that can't wait for you to achieve that goal you unlocked a key metric there there's standards it's Acme Automotive could say one thing. Um, John's Automotive could say another. What is that standard that when a consumer goes to purchase that vehicle or lease that vehicle, that it met that standard? And that that's a big challenge that we have to overcome to, as we talked about earlier, what is the true definition of sustainability and how far is it going to go into your supply chain? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, one of the groups I work with, and I'm a current chair of a supplier partnership for the environment, and that is a group of OEMs and suppliers that are working together to, to put a lot of this process and standardization together. You know, right now we're, we're, we're exchanging a lot of information. We're trying to understand exactly what it's going to look like in the future, right? What would that really mean when we say something like, you know, this is a, a green uh, car? So those are all things that I think we still have a long way to go, but I think the great part of that is we all realize that, and you know there may be some breakthroughs that allow us to move at a faster pace. But it's organizations that when we get together and we can have those conversations, you know, we begin moving things uh, closer to that reality. And that goes into your philosophy: we should, we could, and we have to work together. And that's what you're doing with the supplier partnership for the environment. You're coming together, you're having hard conversations, trying to find the right path forward. What are some of the key challenges that you see Toyota facing as the company works on a sustainability goals? You know, everybody likes the, the words climate change this, this day, you know, right? That's the big, that's the big catch all. You know, I think one of the challenges is that we have to continue to educate people that it's not just climate, it's water, it's materials that we use, it's the supply chain. It's the impact to the uh, environment through biodiversity issues. You know, we have to expand our thinking and not just focus on quote unquote climate change, but all those other things that impact that. You know, for example, when you improve a, a, a habitat, you know, you know, you are impacting one, the water in that area, you're impacting the, the, the species of animals in that area, you're impacting the climate. All those things are beneficial, right? And right now we, we like to measure by well, how much carbon have you reduced? Well, I like to also think about, that's important, no, no mistake, but it's also important that what are you doing to create some additionality in, in, in viable ecosystems and viable clean water that also has an impact in what we're doing in the climate? So to me, it's, it's, a, it's a big issue. It's a complicated issue, but we need to address all of those things as as we move forward in in this space and we we have to un, unpack it to understand the issues and you said water 
we talked about earlier, but I want to quote you on some. You've publicly stated that you believe that water will be one of the biggest issues that we'll face over the next hundred years. That's a very profound statement. Why? What do you see? Well, I think, you know, I, I don't know if it's profound because you know, it's really simple. You know, you look at what's going on in the southwest of the United States. You look at uh, the Mead Reservoir. You look at the Colorado, Colorado River where, you know, experts have said it may never recover. And when you think about things like that and the impact that will have on the Southwest, those are big issues. And in other countries, there's water wars. You know, people are fighting over water, being able to, you know, have rights to water and walking miles to get water where there used to be water readily available. So to me, you know, without water, we're not, you know, you can't grow anything. You can't find food. You can't grow food. And when that happens, that's a vicious cycle that, you know, it's going to be hard to repair. We're very fortunate here in the United States. I mean, we, we have, we feed the world, as they say, right? With a lot of our, if you've ever driven to Iowa or any of those cornfields or even Ohio, you know, soybeans, corn, everywhere. We're lucky there uh, because at this current time, we're able to, our environment allows us to do that. Other areas have changed. Where they used to be able to do that, they can't do that anymore. So, you know, it's important that we realize that, as I said earlier, this is a complete system of concerns. And so we have to be able to work together to get that done. We also have to, to shine a light on, I was speaking to a friend last night that works in sustainability, and we were talking about Lake Mead and Nevada, how it keeps going lower and lower. He goes, that's everybody's poster job. I said, what do you mean? He goes, it's happening all over the place. And he pointed out to me the Great Salt Lake in, in Utah, that's going down. And he's and it's just started going through all these different bodies of water, but it seems like Lake Mead's the poster child. From an education standpoint, how do we get the United States and the world to open its eyes up? It's not just Lake Mead. There's a lot of bodies of water where the same thing is happening. They just do not get the press attention. It's a, it's a really complicated issue, uh, as, as you said. There's more than one area. And, and I think where we're finally going to get people's attention is when our food source starts being depleted you know, radically impacted uh, by the fact that we are losing these water resources and we're not able to irrigate, you know, a lot of these areas. I mean, it, and, it, and again, it's not surface water that we should be just worried about. It's about our aquifers. You know, we're draining our aquifers underground and a lot of this irrigation uh, just to keep crops healthy. So, you know, I, I hate to say this, but, you know, I think we really need to launch a major campaign along with climate change that talks about water in the same breath to be able to bring that to, you know, uh, to be recognized by the, the, the general populace because it's, it's really critical. Again, I, I go back and say it again. I, I hate to say this, but it will really become the realization when we start losing the volume of crops that we're able to, to generate, especially the Southern California dries up and the Colorado River is no longer able to irrigate all the carrots and avocados and uh, all the other products that we come to see in our grocery stores. That's going to be a huge issue. It's going to be a major issue. It's going to lead to food deflation. Think inflation's bad now. Just wait until there's no water. Then, then you're, that inflation's really bad. Yeah, that, that, that's a big concern. You know, and also water is actually one of the highest rising costs of any of your utilities. You know, it's still small in a lot of areas, but if you compare that, 
it's still rising at a rapid rate uh, in a lot of regions just to uh, for a lot of a lot of reasons one for you know water quality uh, improvements that need to be made so so there's more equipment that has to be put in place because the more we pollute the more we have to be able to clean it to meet the water standards so there's a lot of costs that are involved in in keeping us in in high quality drinking water and that's and where I come from and where most of us here in the United States come from, that's, that's, we expect that, right? So we're going to have to pay for it. It's going to get more expensive. Maybe when it becomes more expensive, the price of your electric bill, people say, oh, whoa, 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 wait a second. I'm paying $300 a month for my electricity and $400 a month for my water. Well, wait a second. This is, this is not normal. We got to do something here. Exactly right. I, I think that'll be another eye opener for a lot of people to understand where we're at in this, in this, with water issues. You clearly understand the water issues. Toyota clearly understands the water issues. How is Toyota conserving water and protecting water resources? Well, one of the first things we do is we evaluate our own systems internally. You know, what can we do internally to be able to conserve, recycle, repurpose water before we discharge that water? And, you know, we've put a lot of resources in place to be able to recycle that water maintain that water in-house. One of our facilities in Baja, California, uh, and, uh, sorry, in Mexico, is actually, we're getting really close to be a complete recycled water system, which is going to be an incredible feat. So we, you know, water in Mexico is very difficult uh, as well. You know, water rights are, are critical, and you, we're trying to do our best then to not use more than our share. And when we get our share, we're recycling it and repurposing uh, it right in-house. And we're doing that in a lot of our manufacturing. It's, it's what we call yokaten, Japanese term for when you find a good process, you know, share that, you know, to like, like facilities so that we continue not to have to reinvent the wheel at each location. Let's look at one of your, another facility that you have in Princeton, Indiana. It's a Toyota paint facility. And paint uses water. Are you able to recycle the water when you go through the paint process for the vehicles? Absolutely. We we bring that through the system, and we have a lot of what we call ROI uh, systems that are allow, that will filter that water and actually create it almost like it's better than we when we got it. And so then we it's called reverse osmosis, and we then recycle that back into the paint system. So it's a closed loop of moving water in a circle, trying to uh, make sure that we don't use more uh, of the potable water from the water resource. Wow. Is there a limit on how many times that water could be recycled before you have to put it out to pasture or put it into the river after it's been cleaned? No, there's no limit to that. It will continue to recycle. You know, we continue because of evaporative losses, we, you know, we have to have a little makeup water in there. So that, that continues to be, uh, you know, refreshed a bit. And then when we finally if we do release water, that water quality is at a high standard. So we mentioned the Princeton, Indiana facility where you have the paint. We mentioned the Baja, Mexico facility. When you put the water recycling in two different types of facilities, is it a dis different system that goes into the recycling or how, or, or how does that work? Well, it depends on the water quality coming in, right? Because water quality coming in is different in each location. So there may be some, some differences in some of the equipment because we have to, you know, water purity, because everybody wants that, that Toyota product that we sell them to have that very best paint quality on it, right? So the water quality that we get, we have to always adjust that, improve the water quality before we can even use it. 
So there are some differences in the beginning, but the reverse osmosis system and there may be some other filtrations that are required, but mostly it's, it's a similar system. All the strategies that we've talked about and, and you've highlighted today are part of Toyota's Environmental Challenge 2050. From a high-level perspective, could you shed some light on that, please? We started our Challenge 2050 way back in 2015. I mean, that, and we've been doing environmental uh, work ever since Toyota started. But we in 2015, it was you know it was kind of a well we need a, a restart here. In 2015, we were kind of the first ones to get out there before sustainability was cool. We were kind of already moving in that direction, and so that high level is what I kind of talked about earlier. Is it's a when we look at the 2050 challenge, there's six challenges there. One has to do with the vehicle, right, and carbon reduction from the tailpipe. The second one is our manufacturing operations and suppliers. How do we become carbon neutral with those? Our third challenge is water. As we've just talked about, you know, how do we how do we conserve water, recycle water in a way that makes the most sense and working the most in those water stress regions to begin with. The fourth challenge is that challenge of materials and materiality. How do we educate people to become more of a recycling society? in creating processes by which that recycled material can be reused as automobile parts or as other materials, as well as chemicals and chemical manufacturing. You know, what, what, how do we maintain a good environment by using the right chemicals? And then the last one is this biodiversity. How do we engage communities, not just around our manufacturing, but how do we engage in areas of concern? You know, as a company, as a corporation, you know, we, you know, we have a responsibility to reach out and help those areas that are in need. And we've got a lot of examples of how we've done that. You know, I spent a number of years working in the Galapagos Islands because there were issues in the Galapagos that were, that Toyota realized were issues. And yeah, this is why I say I have one of the best jobs in the company. But, you know, they were, they weren't disposing of their waste properly. They were dumping it simply into the park. Uh, so we established a, a recycling system and and now it's sustained by, the, you know, they put taxes on it so that now that the ecotourism contributes. And, you know, so to me, those are things that, you know, as a company, it's great that we can participate in and create value and reduce those impacts where otherwise they would not be. Toyota cares. We do care. And I can't ever emphasize it enough. I mean, what a, what a cool job to have where you can have that outreach. And the, it always helps when you have the name Toyota with you, right? You know, and, and to be able to uh, influence. You know, one of the things we like, you know, you have to go listen to the people in the area. It's not Toyota's here and we're here to help you. It's how do we engage with them, hear what those concerns are, and then create a plan and a program that they are you know, bought into so that, you know, it will be sustainable at the end of the day. Because if it's sustainable and it's able to, you, Toyota puts the, the groundwork, but then it's be able to withstand on its own, it's only going to continue to have a great impact on the environment. And for the ecotourists that want to experience that beautiful part of nature and swim with the Galapagos sharks, the turtles, they can have that experience because you took the time, Kevin, Toyota took the resources to go down there and say, we're going to have a positive impact on the environment. 
Yeah, and you know, we partnered with, you know, it wasn't just Toyota. We partnered with the World Wildlife Fund in that project, you know, so people that have that expertise as well. So, you know, it's all, again, it goes back to that partnership, getting the subject matter experts on the ground uh, that understand what's going on in the local area. And Toyota has our own subject matter experts, so we can bring a lot to the table and, and create something that is sustainable long term. And staying on the sustainable front, how do you see sustainability evolving over the next decade as more companies actively embrace sustainability? You know, I, I think one of the things that we, we have to really come to grips with is what what does sustainability mean to large corporations? Is it is it I need to be carbon neutral or I just need to get better? You know, I need to make small improvements. I think when we really start thinking about sustainability, it's about that all-in commitment, right? And what we've found also is that a lot of these projects that we do in this, with the term sustainability attached to them, we can save money. You know, we can save money as a corporation. And, you know, it always makes a lot more sense when I can talk to my finance people and talk about how these projects have a great net present value and that we can bring money back into the company or cost avoid spending money by doing these things. So I think it's a mindset where sustainability has to not have that stigma that, well, it's going to cost me money to do this. Yeah, some of it's going to, but others is not. And when we get to that point where people understand that, I think the more that we'll embrace it, and I think that more that sustainable efforts will take place just because it is a cost savings. Whether the people think it's the right thing to do or not, it's a great way to run your business. And that's what Wall Street's concerned about. Are you going to be sustainable in the future? Are you going to be sustainable in creating a space where, you know, you're you're protecting the environment, but you're also working with your supply chain, so your supply chain is sustainable? All these things are going to become more critical in the future as we try to continue to do business. If a large publicly traded corporation is not embracing sustainability, investors will not impact it. You see several funds, they're called impact funds, and they're only investing in certain companies that meet certain criteria. Then you have um, under $11 trillion of management, BlackRock is saying you have to meet these ESG goals, and $11 trillion goes a long way in trying to uh, to do good. The one thing that we've learned throughout this podcast, and it's become very clear, is Toyota's all in on sustainability. I, this is a cachet, but it's, I love the hybrid approach where you're, look, you're looking at water, you're looking at re- renewable energy, you're looking at reducing carbon. You're not just taking this holistic approach. Okay, let's just do a press release. You're diving in and looking at all the critical issues that go into truly developing a sustainable corporation. And Kevin, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, where I'd like to thank you for sharing your great insights, what would you like the listeners to take away with them today? I think one of the most important things is that we have to communicate. We have to collaborate. You know, we have to be able to, in order to move forward at scale, to be able to improve the climate, it's going to take all of us to be able to do that. And I'm not sure that any government entity will be able to regulate us into that. We have to be able to work together ahead of that uh, before for that it's even needed. So, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to helping educate and continuing to educate not only team members, but the general public in, in trying to encourage them to understand where we're at and what, what they can do to help. You know, it's very simple. Every act of conservation matters right? No matter how big or small, but every act of conservation matters. So, you know, 
hopefully we all can get somebody doing something, and then we'll see a change. We will see a change through your efforts. You collaborated with an artist and you developed a beautiful RAV4 that was painted to protect the environment. We will start to collaborate because this is becoming a conversation. As you mentioned during your barbecue, you had that conversation. There's other individuals around the world that are having that conversation because today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, and the future is sustainability. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, and you have a great day. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as we hear from Dr. Anita Sengupta, CEO and founder of Hydroplane. Hydroplane is a minority woman-owned small business with a mission to make aviation carbon emission-free. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.